0: Welcome to episode 14 of the G2 and 5G, the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes and it's brought to you by more insights and in strategy. I'm Will Townsend and joining me again this week is fellow analyst, Angel Sag. So let's get started with my first topic. This week, Deutsche Telekom uh, provided an update on their 5G deployment and coverage of Germany. And I find it pretty impressive. They had a very aggressive goal to cover half of uh, the population by mid-year, they've achieved that. And they're projecting that by the end of 2020, they'll have over three quarters of the country's citizenship covered by 5G. And I don't know if, you know, from your perspective, angel but I think that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, considering the size of Germany, um, that's a very ambitious goal to achieve. Um, and if you look at the size of deutsche telecom they're a very large company mm-hmm. so this would have had to have been a multi-year planning effort to make this possible yeah
0: no i agree i you know, i agree and you know they are quite large and i'm also impressed with they're they're one of the few carriers and and i spoke to this in a, in a forbes article mid last year um focusing on use case and you know private networking has been a big focus of theirs i think they've had some announcements around that activity and um, and so yeah, it just proves that it isn't just about the access; it's actually about the use case from my perspective.
1: Yeah, and I think also probably helped that they had some buy-in from the government, um, because you know, getting the spectrum freed up where you need it and getting the permits that you need if you need to add more sites, um, it's definitely a, a cooperative kind of uh, approach.
0: Yeah, and you know, they've been very vocal in, in the past around. Putting some controls on these spectrum auctions because, as we know, um, you know th- these, you know these auctions, like they 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 kind of, from my perspective, spin up and generate billions and billions of revenue, and then you know then the operators have to deploy the infrastructure, which is billions and billions on top of that, and so um, yeah, it's you know it's it's a quite interesting dynamic, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how they track to that goal of you know getting three quarters of. Uh, that coverage by the end of the year. But let's shift to your first topic and Qualcomm announced earnings this week, correct? Yeah, so actually
1: yesterday, um, Qualcomm announced earnings and today Apple er, announced earnings. And yesterday Qualcomm kind of alluded to the fact that one of their biggest 5G customers may be delayed um, Mm -hmm. in launching their 5G devices. And they wouldn't have made such an announcement unless it was a pretty big customer, which would either be a Samsung or an Apple. Um, because Apple is moving back to Qualcomm modems right. um, with 5G. And then the first Apple 5G phone is expected to come out this fall. Um, but there have been some things that we've actually talked about on this podcast about the possibility that there might be a delay in the iPhone um, mm-hmm. due to COVID-19 and due to you know the way um, you know the development cycle works. And then today, at, during Apple's earnings, they actually confirmed uh, that the new iPhone will be delayed by a few weeks. Okay. Um, due to, no surprise, COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think it's mostly a, you know, Apple has to have engineers monitoring the bring-up of these devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like they were able to figure out how to re- resolve these issues um, without having their engineers in China or Taiwan or in Korea. Yeah. Um, and And able to get things working remotely, you know, from the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but obviously it caused some delays, and there were probably some components that were also delayed. Um, and as a result, uh, they you know they've got a delay, which is not a huge surprise. But you know, having a five G iPhone, I think, is still a big deal because at least in the U.S., it's going to drive a lot more demand for five G infrastructure and and you know experiences.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the, the footprint of uh, the iPhone is unquestionable. Um, I'm an iPhone user as well, and. You know, you know, I cover infrastructure, you really cover the end devices. Um, I'm curious. So I, I knew that Apple was going to, you know, they, they resolved their, their, their IP, you know, uh, dispute um, with Qualcomm. I thought the original, you know, the, the initial plan was to use, to fall back to Qualcomm, but that given Apple's acquisition of uh, the Intel modem division, that long term, they're going to develop their own, you know, 5G modems. Is that still the case?
1: Yeah, that's still okay. the case. Um, Basically, even if you acquire somebody's modem IP, um, unless you just continue their development cycle, which Mm -hmm. arguably was not satisfactory to Intel's demands, which means they wouldn't continue that development cycle, um, they would need to start from fresh, from Um, new. And that's about a three to five year process. So realistically, we won't see an Apple modem um, probably for another two to three years. Yeah. Um, yeah. but they were, they could have come to market with an Intel 5g modem. It existed. Um, but they kept hitting delays. They kept having issues. And as a result, they, you know, they switched to uh Qualcomm and delayed the potential of a 5g phone for a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, in a former life, you know, I did product marketing and, uh, yeah, I mean the, these roadmaps, you know, it, it's not a flip of a switch, you know, it takes a quite a bit of, uh, Engineering work and you know Apple has historically been obviously they are very they're a closed ecosystem not very they, they are a closed ecosystem So they they want to control very tightly, you know, not only the That's software fine. stack but the hardware stack as well So yeah, I'll be interested to see how that rolls out. Let's hit my second topic this week and um, I, I've been a big advocate of uh, CBRS and um, the democratization of spectrum and uh, the PAL auction launched and uh, initially it's generated over 500 million dollars I know you're going to talk about the T-Mobile analyst call that we were both on earlier today. T-Mobile couldn't comment on on CBRS because they were also participating in the auction. But what I find very compelling about um, the uh, the PAL is that it's giving uh, opportunities to enterprises and school districts and hospitals um, access to licensed spectrum so they can uh, deploy these you know, initially LTE and eventually, you know, 5G, you know, private networks. And I, I really believe that it's, uh, it's going to be very disruptive and it's going to, it's going to really kind of accelerate that whole adoption. Uh, do you have any, any thoughts on that subject? I think the whole
1: CBRS uh, and PAL auction situation is, is kind of convoluted. Um, mm-hmm. I, think it, I think it adds complexity to the spectrum landscape. But it also gives people access to spectrum where they couldn't get it before, Um, because it's you know because CBRS is a more shared band. Right. You know, it adds complexity to the radio um, environment. So Mm -hmm. I think it will add cost um, in some scenarios, Um, but I also think that it will um, give access in places where it just wasn't possible.
0: I agree. I agree. And, you know, Apple supports um, that spectrum with their current, you know, iPhone solution, Samsung as well. So from a device perspective, um, it's ready. I agree with you. It's going to uh, introduce complexity and uh, ongoing wireless was formed to try to, to manage that complexity and provide a very easy way, uh, not only to manage, you know, and, and facilitate, you know, uh, the auction of all of this, but Uh, to help, you know, with the deployment, because you're going to have, you know, enterprises that are very capable, like the larger automobile manufacturers that are going to want to implement it for uh, factory automation. Um, And, you know, but then there'll be others that will need a managed service provider, like a federated wireless that I think I've spoken to in the past, that'll Mm -hmm. be able to provide that that capability. So it'll be interesting how that all rolls out. But so let's segue into that T-Mobile analyst call. We were, you know, it was quite long. It was, it was an hour with, uh, with 30 minutes of Q&A. Neville Ray was on. Uh, John Saw, um, the former CTO of Sprint, who I have a lot of respect for, um, is on the executive team. Uh, Neville now is president of the technology division. And it was fun you know, for John to, to give me a shout out um, on the call as he focuses on uh, emerging technology. But let me let, me let you take it at your topic. What, what were your impressions from the call?
1: Yeah, I was gonna say that um, I think it was really good that they gave a lot of good details on SA. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the majority of the call was pretty much focused on um, standalone um, yeah. and also showing how, how they're gonna deploy 2.5 gigahertz. So I think the two big takeaways were you know, that they're doing 2,000 sites per month now mm-hmm. between 600 and 2.5 gigahertz, which is insane. Right. Um, and that pace obviously will eventually slow or maybe even speed up and then slow down. But um, it's really amazing that they're, they've committed so aggressively to getting so many sites up and going. Um, and I think you know them showing how they're also increasing the speeds of 2.5, where currently it's 300 megabits per second, but by the end of the year, they'll be able to get 400 megabits per second with the same amount of bandwidth, in theory. Maybe they're actually freeing up more bandwidth. That might actually be what it is. But, right. um, you know, I, I think it's just amazing that they're going to be able to pull an average of 400 megabits per second. Um, because the reality is we've already seen some early tests that 2.5 gigahertz um, does north of a gig when you, you have enough yeah. bandwidth. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's really promising. They, you know, they're, they're, really, they're really hammering home uh, the SA stuff, especially saying that they might be the first ones in the world.
0: To have to um, unless
1: somebody decides to do a very small deployment and undercut them. Um, but I don't, I think they'll probably be the first ones with a nationwide deployment. Um, and it's just fascinating how fast and rapid they've been with getting their 5g network up and running and deployed and getting coverage. Um, I think it's, you know, their claims of being ahead of the competition, I think are somewhat valid. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you consider that, um, you know, they're way ahead of both co- their competitors and coverage and their LTE speeds are still pretty solid. Um, and. 5G average speeds are still pretty decent. Admittedly, they're not much better than LTE, but I think those will change vastly as 2.5 rolls out.
0: Yeah, and as SA rolls out, and you know, two of my big takeaways were Neville spoke to the fact that you know there's been a lot of hype around 5G, but th- this is the 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 big the speed improvement is big time. It's 10x, right? So moving from 40 to 400, um, that is like that's going to unlock a, a number of transformative use cases, both for consumer and enterprise. I would have liked to have seen uh, Neville and the team speak more to what they're going to do with business and with um, the assets that Sprint brings because T-Mobile has been a very consumer focused company, they've been very disruptive there, light on uh, the enterprise services, Sprint brings a lot of capabilities, they've launched um, their curiosity IoT network headed up by Eva Rook, and um, they've, you know, they've, they've, they've been delivering, uh, re, you know, kind of repackaged SD-WAN services and those sorts of things. So. I think that's important, and the other thing that, that really struck me as impressive, and you and I have written about this. You know, we we both wrote an article together on the whole layer cake, and for those of the uh, of our viewers that don't know what that means, it's it's this whole notion of with Sprint and T-Mobile coming together uh, post merger, they have a very compelling spectrum footprint. They've got low band, mid band, and high band, and that's what's going to allow them ultimately to deliver ubiquity uh, with, with a 5G network. You know, millimeter wave in urban areas it requires lots of intensification, but you know, to serve um, the broader audiences, albeit at you know slightly lower speeds, with that low and, and mid band.
1: The other thing I was going to say is I would have liked to maybe see more um, commitments to latencies, like actual latency. Right. Um, Or maybe get some figures on what their real, real latency is like. Um, I guess we'll find out soon. Um, But maybe they're just tightening it up and waiting until they actually launch the network to give latency. Because ultimately latency is one of the big, big benefits of 5G, especially with standalone. Um, And they said that they had to rip out their core and put a new core in to uh, be able to do the SA. So yeah, I'm very excited to see where this goes. And they're definitely, um, Paving the way in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I agree with the latency from my perspective. You know, we've both written about it on on Forbes, but uh, it's a game changer. You get under five milliseconds, and then you're enabling you know crazy use cases like real-time streaming video that can be responded to. That's what's going to support autonomous you know driving and vehicles, and you know just unlock a whole host of just very disruptive use cases. So it'll be interesting to keep our uh, our eyes on on T-Mobile and share you know, our insight and input as we see that, you know, mature and grow uh, with T-Mobile. So let's hit my third topic this week. And um, I've written about um, satellite and, you know, there's been a space race around low orbit and OneWeb was the leader. Um, You know, Tesla has come out and they want to provide low orbit satellite capabilities to, you know, be able to provide, you know, broadband and, you know, rural areas and that sort of thing. And it's no secret. OneWeb has had some Hard, you know, economic times, they declared bankruptcy. This week it was announced there's a consortium that's been put together that is going to try to resurrect OneWeb because they did a lot of work. They were they were years ahead of Tesla and 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 even you know, I think says uh, yeah.
1: You mean SpaceX, right? SpaceX. What what was I saying? Yeah, you're saying Tesla. <laughs>
0: Tesla. I'm sorry, yes. yeah. Yeah, Starlink, right? I've got Elon Musk on the mind, right? So yeah, SpaceX. So so that's encouraging because, you know, I believe that low orbit satellite will take some time. That can serve potentially as future backhaul for 5G. And think about it, you know, you know, autonomous driving. If you're on autopilot and you're in a city, that's fine. It's blanketed with coverage and density. But if you're right. driving out to the farm, what happens? You know, you've got to grab the steering wheel there. And so Hughes, that obviously Hughes Satellite, they've been the terrestrial leader in providing that coverage. They've committed fifty million dollars to helping resurrect this with this consortium. So, I mean, what, what are I mean, have you been following that at all? And do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I've been following a little bit, um, and yeah, you know, I think they ran. I mean, there was a lot of money invested. I think SoftBank was an investor in one way. They were. It was a SoftBank um,
0: portfolio company. You're right. So they, yeah. I
1: think, they lost their pants on that one. Right. Um, like many other investments, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you look at the way. They were doing things it looked like they were they had good intentions and i think that you know someone should resurrect what they're doing that said starlink is very aggressively um deploying their network as well Mm -hmm. um because you know spacex and starlink it's the same company it's just it's just their product name but um i think there are also some concerns about these low earth orbit networks because they are pretty dense um and they are starting to become an issue because i don't know if you saw some photos of the comet but there was one photo where someone took a picture of the comet and the starlink satellites created a streak across the sky kind of created like a mesh that that that, that like you know obstructed the night sky so um there are definitely some issues with these lower low orbit um satellites that we may not have actually dealt with yet um, so I'm curious to see how how that happens in the future, and whether you know the stargazing community and the ast- you know astronomy community start to push back on it, um, mm-hmm. because it might actually affect their ability to, you know, see the stars. So yeah. I, it's a different, separate issue, but it still affects one web, I think.
0: Did you get a picture of that? I know you're a photographer. <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, not a we good one, but that. I did get a picture. <laughs> yeah, we should we should we should share that with the audience. So. Let's uh, let's hit the last topic, it's your topic, and you are our resident uh, AR, VR, mixed reality guy, and you want to talk about OpenXR.
1: Yeah, so just a quick kind of wrap up, I wrote an article in Forbes about it today, mm-hmm. um, but uh, back on Tuesday they announced a, uh, um, basically like it's been a year since they created the standard, and they have a lot of momentum from uh, Microsoft and from Facebook, um, they actually got both the Oculus Quest and the Microsoft HoloLens certified, among other headsets, mm-hmm. um, and basically, you know, they're getting a lot of traction. Uh, the new Minecraft engine is actually going to support OpenXR as well. So mm-hmm. you can, you know, watch, you know, play it in VR if you want to. And the other thing is, is that they talked about 5G, and how OpenXR now standardizes the way that sensor data is communicated from an XR headset to the edge compute that's sitting on the 5G network mm-hmm. so that when it sends these low latency sensor data that the renderer on the edge compute can adjust based on head position or on movement and be able to quickly send that data back, render the proper you know, head pose and send it back to the headset with very minimal latency. So okay. they've been working on basically reducing the latency of how they send this sensor data over to the edge so that the, it can be rendered quickly and sent back quickly and so there isn't any sense of lag or VR sickness. And so that the user who has an AR or VR headset on, or XR in this case, would be completely unaware to the fact that they are rendering out on the edge compute.
0: Interesting. So beyond performance, I mean are there any benefits? I mean will will an open approach here lower potentially the price of headsets, you know, I I've I've got you know a very entry level product. I know that you know, these things, these, you know, go very, very high end. So, I mean, w- will there be any sort of effect on overall price?
1: So what it would do is it would actually allow headset makers to put less processing in their headsets. So more processing can be done on the edge so that higher quality experiences can be achieved on, on devices that are lighter and thinner than they were in the previous generation. Because less processing needs to be done on the headset and right. more can be offloaded to the edge. So you can do a really high quality, high, you know, high polygon um, experience without having to render all of it on the device, because if you do it on the device, it gets hot, you know, it needs a lot of processing power, it needs a lot of battery, but if you take those away, it's mostly kind of like a a view, a remote viewer. Now that's not always going to be the case and it's going to take a while for that to happen, but that's not possible unless you have a standard by which all headsets Abide by, and all infrastructure abides by, so yeah. it's I think it's a great thing to have
0: yeah, and um, I would think also that that's going to allow these devices to shrink and get smaller, yeah. and then you know consumer is one thing, but then the application for enterprise like for and even for like first responders, you know and i I've heard of the the use case, I think it was a Qualcomm you know proof of concept where you know a firefighter could have wear a goggle and have all this overlay information as they enter a burning building know where potential victims are based on heat mapping, yeah. where other firefighters are. Hot That's the golden team. eye. No, yeah, not, not to go through a certain door if there's fire behind it. So mm-hmm. it could be very, very compelling.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, there's already some glasses out there that makes that compromise, but there isn't edge compute to you know, prop them up exactly. in a way to yeah. give them more graphical capabilities. So they basically just like smart glasses right now but the idea is that it gets what, what a good pair of smart glasses look like to run like an AR headset with full both eyes and, you know, 3D.
0: Yeah, it'll be exciting to see what, uh, what results from that in the future. So, hey, well, that wraps up another great episode this week. Why don't you take us home?
1: Sure. Uh, we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to reach out to us on a specific subject around 5G they would like for us to cover in a future podcast, Please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Willtown Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog on Twitter. So please have a great weekend, and please tune again next week. Thank you.